Hello, Mr. Moore. It's absolutely wonderful to have you back on this recording with me. How have you been? Uh, I'm I'm good now that I'm back on these recordings. I was lost without them. You know, I don't eat, I don't sleep, I don't groom myself. It's rough. But now I have something to continue on for again. How are you? Um, I'm doing all right. A lot has been going on since we last recorded a really um, impactful episode with a lot of stuff. So I think since then, a lot has happened in the news and definitely we want to cover some of those juicy events. But I think within these past like 20 days of February, there's been so much that's been going on. So before we kind of go back in time and look at some of the January and December events, let's just go ahead and get really into, I guess, the first biggest thing, which has been domestic, which is spy balloons, spy balloons, and spy balloons. Um, if you guys haven't heard, and I'm sure you have, because it's been such a huge piece of media, that uh, there have been spy balloons all across the United States that apparently China, quote unquote, has been sending over. But now really, I think the first spy balloon that was identified in the early uh, days of February was a Chinese spy balloon that flew off course. And it was eventually downed and recovered by the U.S. government. But very interestingly, the Chinese government kept on insisting that like they, the United States government shouldn't shoot this down, right? Like it should just be left remaining there and it's not really causing anyone harm. And, you know... Usually you would think that would be our, like the case, but like this is a spy balloon, right? The, U the Chinese government even admitted that the purpose of this balloon was to spy on Guam and Hawaii, which is problematic in itself. But the fact that it also ended up in the mainland of the United States is absolutely crazy. You had a bunch of people with guns trying to shoot this down themselves to the point that the U.S. military had to tell them to like, please do not do this. We will handle it ourselves. And very interestingly about this balloon is that even though it was supposed to go ahead and spy off that coast of the United States and somehow ended up in the mainland, apparently upon shooting it down and like making sure that this balloon did have like all these spy technologies, at the same time, they recognized that the balloon also had some self-steering capabilities. So the Chinese government easily could have taken it out of U.S. airspace, but they left it there for multiple days to the point that they were able to gather like crucial intel over the United States before the U.S. started to jam the balloon, of course. So it, it was very interesting in seeing how the saga played out with that balloon. But more importantly, it's just how the relationship between the U.S. and China was impacted by this balloon, just because China is like really blaming the U.S. for like shooting down this balloon. But if the roles were reversed, I'm sure China would not be happy if the U.S. just literally just sent a balloon in the middle of their country. Something interesting is so you, you have this balloon that is supposed to go off Guam and Hawaii. Um, and, and given the weather that we observed, it is possible that it could have been blown significantly off course. And that's why it got to the mainland. But with those self-steering capabilities, even once it's blown off course, that could have been corrected. And what actually happened is it drifts out over Alaska, over Canada, and then it gets to Montana, where we have a bunch of our nuclear missile sites. And then the wind doesn't stop, but the balloon does, which is one of the first clues about the self-steering capability. And then once they make a public announcement, that's when the balloon dips from Montana and goes full speed, once again using some of its self-steering abilities to go even faster, to beeline across the country towards the East Coast, trying to get as much view as possible, presumably. Um, and so, and the really interesting thing is when it was first, you know, announced over Montana, the Chinese government said, oh, that's just a weather balloon from some civilian researchers here. It was blown off course. We have nothing to do with it. 
And then it drifts all the way across the country before being shot down over the ocean, which is reasonably what you would do. And we'll get to this later. If a balloon is off course in general, um, you would find a way to bring it down if you if it could cause problems. And if it's way off course from its intended research, its civilian use is limited as well. But then once the U.S. shoots it down, the Chinese government condemns it in very, very strong terms and threatens to very vaguely respond in some way. Um, and the backdrop of this is, well, this was all supposed to happen. Our secretary of state um, was supposed to be traveling to China for the first meeting of the administration. And then that was canceled over this balloon, um, which then ultimately, despite China's claims, was recovered and found to have all of the surveillance uh, equipment and more uh, that had been theorized. Yeah, and I think another huge part of this like spy balloon story is the fact that even though like we are first hearing about this as the public it, during the Biden administration, apparently there were similar spy balloons sent by China that were over the United States airspace during the Trump administration, and they were just kept classified and not really brought up to attention. So it, it, it's just really crucial to see that, like, has China been doing this for a very long time? Was the Trump administration okay with them doing it? And how many times has the U.S. government downed these sorts of balloons? And why is it this? Why is this the first time that we're hearing about it, honestly? Yeah. And, and some of the story, uh, at least from the Biden administration, and it might take some time for outside sources to verify this is true, is that some of there were some balloons in the Trump administration in the U.S. and in other countries around the world that were known and kept classified. They just weren't made public. Um, and others won other. There are now other also other unidentified flying object cases in the past that people are looking back and thinking there's a good chance that was actually one of these Chinese spy balloons. Um, because it's not just U.S. airspace. Even right now, they found one over Latin America, and there are believed, and, and they say very confidently that these have been going over countries in all the continents of the world, that this is a massive program of the Chinese government. Yeah, and I think since the spy balloon was downed, I think a lot has progressed with it, just because while that was the first unidentified object that was quote unquote identified, since February 10th to onwards, there have been multiple other objects that have just sprung across the North American airspace. The first one was in Alaska, which was found on February 10th, and then the US government tried to down it. They went ahead and missed this balloon that was apparently up in the air, and that was a $500,000 missile that they just don't know where it is now. So the government spent a million dollars trying to down this simple balloon. And very interestingly, with at least the Alaska case, um, there's this one Northern Illinois like balloon brigade uh, foundation or organization that said that they had lost one of their um, balloons or objects around the Alaska airspace. And it's only worth around like $15 maximum for their contraption. And to think that the US government overreacted and spent a million dollars trying to down this $15 object is absolutely crazy. But there's no obvious confirmation of this because I think it's just a bad look if the US government acknowledges that this is a $15 thing that they <laughs> very much overly exaggerated. But at that same time, the very next day, there was a unidentified object that was shot down in Canadian airspace and more recently, on February 12th, there was a UFO that was um, identified in Lake Huron. And one of the very interesting things about that sighting is that the U.S. government decided to release the audio footage of the fighter pilot who was following that object. 
And they noted that this object was kind of octagonal in shape and it was really small, but they couldn't really understand how it was in the air in the first place because there was no sort of thrusters or boosters. It was just kind of existing in the air. So it kind of, I guess, points to aliens, but not really. So just something to keep in mind about all these different objects. And I wouldn't be surprised if more and more objects start to appear within the next month. Yeah, I mean, so what, what the U.S. military did and instructed civilian partners to do as well is once they found this one major Chinese spy balloon, which was, uh, just for the record, massive, way bigger than any actual weather balloon uh, would be or has been. Um, and that's why people could see it from their naked eye, even though it was actually above where airliners even fly. These balloons with these more sensitive radars were found to be actually roughly in the area. They were lower down because they're smaller balloons. Um, where commercial balloons might say. And so right now the U.S. military said, we're not actually, we don't have any good reason to think these are Chinese balloons. They've also confirmed like cross-checking different departments. None of these are like official U.S. things that just weren't communicated. Um, so it may be that they were just pretty benign objects. Um, they don't, the U.S. military doesn't think they were self-manned. They don't think it was aliens. Um, but it, regardless, because of these were lower down, they were at a level that were could overlap with a commercial flight. And that's like one of the big reasons why they say even maybe it was an overreaction based on the Chinese spy balloon issue. But regardless, it's good to get these type of things out of the airspace because they're at the level where, you know, it's a one in a million chance. But if an airline goes nearby, it could cause an issue. Um, yeah, no, very interestingly about this entire situation, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, uh, Mr. Moore, is that like, in the past, whenever we've seen like UFO sightings, it's usually one part of the Air Force hiding something from the other part of the Air Force because they just keep that information classified. But I don't really think that's at play in this situation, especially because the audio tapes were released, because why would they even allow the audio tapes to be released in the first place if it is a classified matter at the end of the day? It just, I feel, complicates the entire things and then we're spending unnecessary money. But I mean, that is part of the military's job at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, to suck up our discretionary budget. And, and speaking of another big thing that the military budget has been using for, I think this is a, a decent segue into a into our next topic, which is more U.S. international relations and uh, Biden's surprise visit um, to Kiev as part of his uh, um, tour of Eastern Europe. Yeah, and I, I think the significance of this visit, like even outside of like Russia being the like the U.S.'s primary enemy internationally and everything, and the significance there, but the biggest thing is that this is the first time that a U.S. president has stepped soil on an actual active war zone without the presence of the U.S. military as like the main defending force. Right? Obviously, the U.S. military is near the borders that can be activated at any sort of point if there is any issue with President Biden going ahead and being like threatened or anything like that but the fact that he was willing to go ahead and take that step is a huge signaling thing for the united states just to show that it is a continued support and interest in that region and obviously during this time president biden and like the rest of the administration informed russia that they are going to be in this region so if anything happens like good luck <laughs> so yeah it is definitely like a very growing tensed issue and a lot of like the tensions around that region have also started to spread with Russia getting even more like encapsulated with this conflict and dragging other nations to it as well to some degree. Yeah, uh, and uh, another combo is with um, the U.S. Um, recently announced that they believe 
that the Chinese government is has been having conversations about considering upping their support to Russia as well, which with you know the weather's warming up over in Ukraine and here as well. It's really nice out here. Um, but that that opens the way for a spring offensive and Ukraine newly supplied with some Western tanks. Though most of those tanks would take a long time to get delivered. Russia having drafted more and more people from their military, a lot of them from prisons. They're both gearing up for major spring offensive, hoping that they can to break through the front lines and change the fate of this war. Um, and so in sort of this tense background back, uh, drop, uh, the U.S. president showing up there uh, unannounced sort of a, as a show of bravery and of support, while also on the rest of the trip doing diplomatic work to try to make sure that the rest of the country supporting Ukraine stay on task and stay on mission, even if things get hard over this next phase of the war, is uh, I think pretty major from a diplomatic um, and, uh, you know, strategically, strategic standpoint. Yeah, no, definitely. And like very recently, as of today, I know that President Xi Jinping is planning on making a visit to um, uh, President Putin, or yeah, just Putin in general, just to go (laughs) see the conflict out and also to just have some talks about the diplomacy of the two nations. And I, I think that's a huge signaling thing just because of the fact that China is really out to support Moscow to some degree within this conflict, even if the rest of the world has turned its back on Russia. And I think in that similar note, something very interesting that Russia has been doing, which really hasn't been so much part of the news, which is Russia's involvement in Moldova, just because Russia has been really just like trying to force a coup in that nation. And just in case you guys don't know where Moldova it is, it it is like a small nation that is right next to Ukraine. And so far, like pro-Russian use, um, pro-Russian uh, protesters have taken up the streets. They've started to coup against the entire government to the point that like the entire nation is really just under this sense of turmoil. And what would happen next is going to be very crucial because either the state can go ahead and flip pro-Russia or it can still maintain its grounds. But I think a lot of support will be needed by like Western allies to try to prevent that coup from really like panning out. Yeah, and, and Moldova has a lot of similarity to a lot of other countries in Eastern Europe. It was once uh, part of the USSR, and it has a region of its country that is currently, despite being officially its territory, it's called Transnistria, which is for years, due to Russian support, uh, operated as a de facto independent region. And very importantly, it's pretty dependent on Russia for its energy. So it's in a really rough stance. Um, it's also one of the saddest countries on Earth. Uh, statistically speaking. So there's a lot of discontent with various aspects of life there, which is an opportunity for Russian money, Russian forces, Russian weaponry uh, to potentially mobilize a group of people, even if it's not the majority, to take action and try to change things there, which is what is people worried are going to happen with this, these protests turning into a coup. Yeah, and I, I think it makes you just wonder that if if the Moldova protests and coup are successful, how is this going to impact other nations that were once part of the USSR? I know that a lot of nations that were part of this block, of course, are very anti-Russian, but there are always going to be parties within these countries that do support the old Soviet Union and do support the new Russia. So maybe the potential to spread across Europe is very, very dangerous, especially during this time of conflict, because then they could theoretically just surround Ukraine. And that could just be a huge, huge issue. Yeah, especially with, you know, the Russian 
you know, they, they send money to parties they like. They do massive online misinformation campaigns, you know, like what they did in the U.S. 2016, but on steroids. Because in these smaller media markets, they can really overpower the trends. Um, but looking just across the Black Sea from the Ukraine conflict, which has been going on for over a year now, um, you see that a, a country that had been a fairly major, fairly neutral um, player involved in that conflict recently suffered a massive natural disaster of its own, and that would be Turkey, where and also Syria as well was affected by this. But the, a couple of weeks ago, a massive earthquake, and in just over a weekend, they lost nearly 50,000 lives killed across that conflict, many more injured, many more homes destroyed. And then just um, a couple of days ago, another 6.3 magnitude earthquake struck the region. Um, and you know a lot of the buildings that could top over already had, but still so far, they've estimated eight more people have died and 300 more have been injured or hospitalized. And with the strain on the existing infrastructure, that's a huge deal. And j just in case you guys don't really understand how Turkey is operating right now, I know that it might seem like Turkey is in the Middle East, so obviously they're going to have warm weather, but that really isn't the case. They have very similar weather conditions to the rest of America, especially like the northern part of America, to the point where like it's very rainy, it's very gloomy, it's like 30-ish degrees Fahrenheit over there. It's really not that amazing conditions. And having to be outside during this time has been creating a lot of tensed like situations just because now the healthcare like network there is not only dealing with victims of the earthquake, but now they have to deal with hypothermia cases because people aren't able to take shelter, people aren't able to warm up. And that's another huge reason why they are going ahead and suffering. And that's why the death toll is also climbing just because there aren't enough resources to also help with the weather issue that is happening in the region. Yeah. And in, in the initial you know rush of the rescue campaign, there were in the end 12,000 international aid workers, including those from 88 countries. But if you compare the response to this sort of natural disaster, 50,000 about killed in the weekend, um, to what the Western world has done rallying to support Ukraine, um, and obviously most of the aid to Ukraine is military, but there, but there was a lot of humanitarian aid as well. And when you compare the Ukraine support to Turkey, it's nowhere near as much, um, which is interesting and that less support is going to Turkey is Turkey is in theory an actual NATO member. And obviously this isn't a military case, but one maybe would hope that such an alliance, if there was truly goodwill between countries, um, which there are a lot of reasons why Turkey has been not particularly well liked by the rest of NATO over the last 10 or so years, but just the lack of support for this sort of disaster is I think really telling about the nature of the alliance. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I think it really kind of just speaks to the fact that like, even though Turkey, once again, is a NATO ally, is it really a NATO ally at that same time? Because it, I, it has allied itself with Russia in multiple instances and taken Russia's stances. And even throughout the Ukrainian conflict, they haven't been pro-Ukraine the entire time, right? They've been trying to maintain this neutral ground so that they can benefit from both U.S. involvement and also um, Russian involvement, or at least support from both sides. So it's been definitely a very interesting telling uh, relationship in that region. But also, like, our condolences definitely go out to every single person who is suffering in that region just because... Even if you have different political views, you do not deserve to lose 50,000 people per like few weeks in a country. Yeah. That, that's just this absolutely absurd. This isn't Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we <laughs> don't believe in such collective punishment. So it's definitely a huge, massive tragedy. One that I think deserves more support and help than they've gotten so far.
Um, and obviously another area where it's very complicated to send help is into Syria, because the lack of relationship and trust between the Syrian government and outside powers, as well as sanctions, um, limits the ability to get aid to certain areas. Because um, the parts that we, the U.S. is allied with are surrounded by parts the Syrian government controls, and we don't want to trust the Syrian government to help the parts we're allied with. So it's a mess. Yeah, definitely. So we'll definitely keep you guys updated in how these conflicts go ahead and turn out, and especially the spy balloon things, because that's right at home, but also just these international conflicts, which are so pertinent to the U.S. government and also the rest of our well-being. So definitely keep tuned in for our next episode. Hopefully it's sooner than later. And we're going to hopefully also revisit some of our previous stories, but also provide some new updates on upcoming stories. Sounds good to me. All right. Have a good one, guys. See ya.